Hey gang, uh, since we recorded this conversation, our guest, Bharat Ramamurthy, has been appointed by the Biden administration to be the deputy director of the National Economic Council, which is super cool. And I wanted to give you that update so you know, as you listen to this episode, you're listening to the new uh, administration. And uh, congratulations to Bharat. So let's get to it. Today, we get to talk to one of the authors of Roosevelt's True New Deal. The idea behind the True New Deal is essentially, let's reconceive of the rules of our economy and then swing the pendulum back that we've seen basically since the Reagan era, where there's been a smaller and smaller role for government. It is a very comprehensive proposal. It is, and we're going to cover it all in 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll cover some of it. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. So, Goldie, today we get to talk to a really super interesting person, Bharat Ramamurti, who is the managing director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute and is one of the authors of Roosevelt's True New Deal, uh, which is really exciting and really interesting. Yeah, and and uh, they're not using that term lightly. <laughs> it, no. it is... Yeah, it is a very comprehensive proposal. You know, just to outline, Nick, and some of these some of these topics we've talked about before yeah. in whole or in part, but it lists nine essential policies for this true New Deal: canceling student housing and medical debts, creating a federal jobs guarantee, federalizing and expanding unemployment insurance, building a modern reconstruction finance corporation. That's a call back to the old New Deal. Guaranteeing universal child care, mandating sectoral bargaining, ensuring corporate accountability through federal chartering, reinvigorating antitrust law for real trust busting, and rebalancing political power through institutional reform. That is a lot. It is. It is. And we're going to cover it all in 30 minutes. <laughs> well, I think we'll cover some of it. Yeah. Uh, it knowing us, we'll probably get bogged down on the first one, but yeah. uh, uh, we'll make our best effort. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that the, the really exciting thing about this proposal is that a lot of these ideas are not as outlandish as they would have been in 2016. And a lot of these ideas actually are in some ways reflected in what the Biden administration ran on and what we know his economic advisors are currently discussing. You know, it speaks to the recognition that the neoliberal era was a disaster and that we need to, in deep structural and ambitious ways, replace those ideas and that policy framework with something new. And so, you know, it's just cool to see how far we have come in not that many years, if not in policy, at least in the ideas we're willing to discuss. Yeah. In that way, it's uh, exciting. On the other hand, uh, 
you don't get a new deal absent a catastrophe, and it does speak to the current catastrophe uh, that, that we're facing right now. That's right. So with that, let's talk to Bharat. My name is Bharat Ramamurti. I'm the managing director of the Corporate Power Program at the Roosevelt Institute and also a member of the Congressional Oversight Commission for the CARES Act. I just read through the uh, the Roosevelt report calling for a true New Deal, and we hear the word New Deal thrown around a lot as in a Green New Deal, but my God, this really is a New Deal. This is as ambitious as the old New Deal. Tell us a bit what went into putting this together. Sure. So the Roosevelt Institute's view has long been that we need structural change to the economy, right? We need to reorient the role of public power uh, in the economy, reassert that role, and in doing so, change the way that money flows through the economy in a fundamental way. To give you an example of that, a lot of policy, uh, federal policy, focuses on what I think of as redistribution, right? Uh, tax programs, spending programs, essentially taking the, the initial distribution of money in the economy taxing the wealthy and big corporations, and then uh, reinvesting that money into programs that help you know, lower income and, and middle-class families. That is very important, obviously. But there's a whole set of other changes that you can make to the economy that affect the initial distribution of all that income, right? And so an example that I like to use is uh, allowing workers to elect uh, a significant chunk of corporate board members. So if workers uh, have a company have a real voice in corporate decision-making and decisions about wages and benefits and outsourcing and uh, political spending, the, that initial distribution of money, right, that the percentage of corporate revenue that goes to workers is likely to go up, which means that the, uh, the need for this, the redistributive policies on the back end lessens. And one thing that we've learned is that while redistributive policies are uh, tremendously important and, and often quite popular, those policies that affect the initial distribution uh, of income are even more popular. Right? Putting workers on corporate boards is, is extremely popular. Changing the rules, uh, antitrust rules, so that smaller businesses have a better opportunity to compete against bigger businesses, that's really popular and, and opens up opportunities not only for consumers, but also for workers who have more potential employers to, to go uh, find. So the, the idea behind the True New Deal is essentially Let's reconceive of the rules of our economy and put in place these structural changes and then swing the pendulum back uh, that we've seen basically since the Reagan era, where there's been a smaller and smaller role for government and where this idea that corporations exist solely to maximize the returns that they send to their shareholders rather than having any obligations to their workers or their community uh, starts to reverse as well. Yeah, you're definitely singing out of our hymn book. <laughs> I, I mean, to say nothing of the fact that if you get it right, I mean, it is a primitive way to put it, but if you get it right the first time, you need a lot less of the of the ameliorative programs that we tend to rely on. I was just thinking about that, Nick. I don't know that we've ever used the term on the podcast, but we used to re refer to ameliorcrats. Yes, uh, that's right. The, the, the Democrats that just want to ameliorate the uh, all the bad things about yes. the current economy without doing anything to fix it. Yeah. And this true new deal you're proposing, this is all about fixing the economy. So we need less amelioration. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly right. One way I like to think about it is pre-distribution versus redistribution. Yes. Right? And there's a whole set of pre-distributive policies where, quite frankly, the right has, has made a concerted effort in that area. Right? Why, why do you think that there's such hostility towards unions and unionization? That's all about pre-distributive stuff. Yeah. Right. And and the decline in, in private sector unionization, for example, uh, is highly uh, related to the you know wage stagnation that we've seen over the last twenty or thirty years for lower income and, and middle income workers, where a smaller and smaller share of corporate revenue and corporate profits go to the people who work at those companies and help generate those profits. And so, it's my view that uh, Democrats should start fighting on that battlefield too, uh, more aggressively, because I think. Not only is it critically important and necessary, it's also politically very appealing. And I think it has an opportunity to speak to a really broad set of people who understand and have a feeling that there's something fundamentally unfair about the economy that they're uh, living and working in. It's interesting looking at your list of nine essential policies. You know, some of them are clearly uh, focused on addressing some of the structural problems, the the symptoms of the current economy. But the others, these reforms, you know, at the heart of them all seems to be rebalancing power in the economy. You see that in proposing a federal jobs guarantee, in mandating sectoral bargaining, in uh, reinvigorating antitrust law. How important is power in terms of uh, what's wrong in the economy today? I would argue that it's the single biggest problem, and in fact, is sort of the, other, the the main problem from which all the other problems flow. The fundamental distribution of power in the economy is what ends up affecting wages and benefits and corporate profits. It's what affects corporate decisions on moving jobs overseas and so on, right? And I think what you've seen historically is this interesting trend, right, where basically in the post-World War II period, where you know, I should be clear, there were obviously significant issues in the labor market. There was uh, significant discrimination against minorities, against women, and so on. But what you see during that period is that when corporate profits go up and when worker productivity goes up, workers' wages go up in tandem with it, right? There's basically a one-to-one correlation between those things. And then starting in about in the 1980s, with Reagan coming to office, with Milton Friedman and the idea that corporations should only exist to maximize shareholder value, you see a huge disjunction between those things where corporate profits continue to rise sharply, but wages basically level off and, and remain stagnant in real terms for you know, the last 30 or 40 years. And I think that the disjunction that you see then is fundamentally about the reallocation of power during that period, the decline in, uh, in labor power through the decline in unionization, the shift in focus uh, from corporations, a view that the role of government is to simply facilitate the market rather than to uh, set the terms for the market so that there's more equitable distribution. And I think that the combination of changes that we've seen, you know, which you can sort of shorthand as the Reagan revolution, has in many ways colored the way that both Republicans and Democrats think about the economy for the last 30 or 40 years. And what we need to do, I think, is, is move beyond that perspective to understanding that the opposite of a less active role for government isn't more freedom for people, the alternative for a less active role for government is more uh, power for corporations, right? Instead of the government setting the rules, the corporations are setting the rules and dictating how the game is played. And, and frankly, for all the flaws in our democratic system, 
I'd much rather have the people at least be the ones trying to set the rules rather than big corporations being the ones trying to set the rules. Absolutely. And I think that what's so clear is that the consequences of both Republicans and Democrats being swept up in this sort of neoliberal view that if you just get out of the way of the market, all will be well and everyone will do well has resulted in just an absolutely catastrophic failure of governance, as we've seen the rich and only the rich do better and almost everyone else in the society do worse. It's going to take a big lift to reverse that thinking and those policies. Yeah, I I completely agree with that, though I'm more hopeful than I was five or 10 years ago about, about people recognizing that problem and starting to propose and act on solutions that yeah. are more structural more structural in nature and I think that that's uh, that's a hopeful sign and I think that yeah. uh, even you know during the general election you know president-elect Biden campaigned on a platform that included a lot of these types of ideas and I think just to go back to the true New Deal point I, I think it's not just you know directly empowering workers by things like you know, allowing them to elect corporate board members there are things like uh, universal child care where there's an indirect but important relation to that, right? Because you know, costly childcare is such a limitation for parents who are trying to exist and, and, and participate in the workforce. And as a result, it really limits their ability to look for new work, to take on new work, yeah. to try to go back to school to potentially get another degree so that they open up more job opportunities for them. And so providing you know, universal free or at least affordable childcare to to parents, you know, creates basically a new form of freedom, right? It allows them to uh, enter the workforce more on their terms. And of course, if they choose to stay at home, they can, but at least it gives them the option of entering the workforce with more uh, comfort that their children are going to be well taken care of and that it won't you know, bust the budget to do so. Right. And definitely one of the cruelest jokes that neoliberalism played on American families was you know, suppressing wages in a way that required both parents to work and then saddling the family with childcare expenses, which, you know, in many families exceed the costs of the extra income. It's just, yeah, exactly. I, you know, I, I, I didn't mention this at the beginning, but of course, for the last uh, seven years before uh, I moved to the Roosevelt Institute, uh, I worked as an economic advisor to Senator Elizabeth Warren. And uh, and she wrote a book about this, you know, I think almost two decades ago at this point called The Two Income Trap, which provided a lot of data uh, on this point, which is that even as women entered the workforce and created a second stream of income for families, the cost of the necessities, you know, child care, right. education, housing, uh, health care went through the roof and in many cases, uh, you know, exceeded even the additional income that was being brought in by the second earner. And so uh, families were actually in a more precarious financial position uh, after all of that than they were before when there was only one income. And as you said, it's a it's kind of a cruel joke where what seems like an empowering option that is providing more flexibility to families has actually been disempowering and limiting right. because, uh, you know, it used to be in the, in the old days that the existence of that possible second income was a good safety net for families. But now even that's off the table because they're already getting two incomes. Right, right. And you you title this this report a, a true new deal building an inclusive economy in the COVID-19 era. You'd think a, a lot more Americans are aware of the need for universal childcare, 
after having to work with their children at home for the past <laughs> year. Yes, I will uh, personally vouch as, as having a <laughs> five uh, and four-year-old that that my own interest in affordable and uh, high-quality childcare options has uh, increased substantially over the course of uh, the last couple <laughs> of months. But, but yes, you know, I think that uh, it's important to recognize that the COVID era both the emergence of the pandemic, the public health implications, and the economic uh, effects of it, I think have heightened the awareness of the need for these types of reforms, right? Number one, it demonstrates that you need a robust, well-managed, competent government in order to address these types of threats, whether it's a global pandemic or climate change, and that the idea that you can just let the market handle these types of problems is ridiculous. Right. Uh, number two, my concern has always been that in many ways, COVID has accelerated some of the negative trends that we saw pre-COVID. There's been a lot of discussion about this uh, K-shaped recovery where, you know, higher income families, wealthier families have made it through the crisis just fine because it's easy for them to work from home and, and they're not in the types of service sector jobs that are, have been the most affected by, by COVID. The flip side is that lower income families have been hit harder because they're more subject to layoffs. They don't have the type of wealth to draw upon to, to make it through a few uh, tough months. And so I'm concerned that we're going to come out the other side of this pandemic with maybe the top line numbers of the economy looking okay. But underneath the surface, there's going to be much more inequality and lower income families in America are going to be in, in even worse shape, relatively speaking, than they were you know, yeah. a year or two ago. Very quickly, though, on that topic, could you just comment on how this proposal overlaps with uh, your work on the CARES Act? Sure. So on the CARES Act Oversight Commission, uh, we are responsible for overseeing actually just one part of the March CARES Act, which is the portion that set aside about $500 billion for the Treasury Department and the Federal Reserve to use together to provide loans to businesses and to state and local governments. And my concern about how that money was set aside and, and then subsequently how it's been administered by the Trump Treasury Department and the Fed is that it has deployed that money in a way that has been much more beneficial for for Wall Street and the wealthy than it has for, for everyone else. So just to give you an example, some of the money in the program was explicitly supposed to go to help state and local governments. Uh, and state and local governments disproportionately employ, you know, sort of lower income, middle income workers. They disproportionately employ uh, black workers and female workers. This money was supposed to provide a critical lifeline for state and local governments that have seen these huge revenue losses because of COVID. The way that they created that program, it hardly helped anybody. You know, as of today, which is nine months basically since the CARES Act passed, Literally two entities have taken advantage of that lending program, the New York subway system and the state of Illinois. That's it. Even though all of these state and local governments are facing serious problems. And the reason for that is that the program was designed in such a way that the loans were so punitive that it hardly made sense for anybody to take advantage of them. You know, at the same time, some of that money was set aside for purchasing corporate bonds in an effort effectively to, to lower the cost uh, for big companies to borrow money. And that program was wildly effective. You know, actually, it's cheaper. Uh, it was cheaper a few months after the CARES Act passed for a for a company to borrow money in the bond market than it was before COVID. And so, what we've seen is this: that the way that this program was administered has actually exacerbated some of the 
the inequality that we've seen in other aspects of the CARES Act and in, and in other aspects of the public health crisis. And so, you know, what I've been trying to do over the last several months is argue for fundamental reforms to the way these programs are designed so that they provide more help to small businesses and more help to state and local governments while being not being so generous to, to the big corporations that can issue bonds that are traded on Wall Street. Could that money be used to purchase municipal bonds? Yes. And in fact, that's one thing that me and some of and my Democratic colleague on the Oversight Commission, Congresswoman Shalala, have called for. Just like the money is being used to buy corporate bonds, um, there's nothing stopping the Fed and the Treasury Department from using it to buy municipal bonds that are traded on the secondary market, which, which would have the effect of, of lowering the cost of borrowing for state and local governments. So far, the Fed and the Treasury have resisted that, and I think it's been a mistake. Is that something that the incoming Biden administration could change without congressional approval? Uh, well, you know, actually, the, the the debate that's happening right now in Congress about the relief bill contains some language that would affect the way these programs operate. The, that language is still being negotiated, so I don't know where it's going to come out at the end of those discussions. But you know, as of right now, if there are no changes to that language, then yes, I think the the next administration, the Biden administration, and the next Treasury Secretary could push for changes to the way these programs are operated, so that they you know, buy municipal bonds in the secondary market so that they offer uh, lower rates and longer repayment terms to state and local governments. Uh, at the end of the day, they do need the cooperation of the Fed because both the Treasury and the Fed have to agree on the terms before they're finalized. But you know, replacing the Trump Treasury Department with the Biden Treasury Department, at least in theory, you know, removes one of the obstacles to that type of change. You know, one of the nine essential policies is canceling debt. We're huge fans of canceling student debt, but you guys also have your sights set on housing and medical debts. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. So just a, a quick word on student loan debt, which is uh, an area that uh, I've spent a lot of time on. I think, you know, there's about 1.5, north of $1.5 trillion of debt outstanding you know, canceling all or some of that debt would be incredibly helpful for the economy. And and the nice thing about it is that all of that debt is on the government's books. So it's actually very straightforward for the for the government to go about and, and cancel the debt. You know, medical debt is, uh, you know, a slightly different story in that the debt is in the hands of private actors. And that makes it a little bit more complicated. But, you know, the idea that there are people who, through no fault of their own, of course, get sick or their child gets sick and they incur you know these massive medical bills and it follows them around for the rest of their life and they can't do anything about it right they they it prevents them from buying a home it prevents them from starting a business it prevents them sometimes from getting married right it prevents them from uh, moving to a different part of the country and and uh, you know taking a risk like that and i think you know in the scheme of things the amount of medical debt outstanding is relatively small if you compare it to the amount of student loan debt outstanding it's about you know, 5%, three or three or four or 5% of that amount. And so for a relatively small cost, you could eliminate the medical debt in this country and just, you know, fundamentally transform some people's lives. How many people do you happen to know? Uh, you know what? I need to go uh, back and look at the data. I don't have it offhand, but I think it's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. I think it's safe to say, and potentially more than that. And how about housing? Yeah. I mean, look, one of my frustrations about what happened in the post-financial crisis period was that 
there was incredible, effectively, you know, massive debt relief for banks. Uh, the federal government ponied up a ton of money to remove toxic assets from the books of, of financial institutions. Uh, meanwhile, you know, a lot of Americans had their own toxic assets, which was their, which were their mortgages, right? That they had been essentially tricked into in many cases, and you know, the government did very little at the end of the day to try and help those folks. When one of the tools that it had available to it uh, was to basically force financial institutions to reduce the principal on the mortgages that were outstanding, right? Essentially, a debt reduction deal. And I think that you know, we we have sort of emerged from that uh, housing crisis. Now, but there still remain tools available to the government, especially through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the government-sponsored enterprises that are currently in government conservatorship, to to at least do some more targeted things to help people who are struggling with their mortgages. And I think that's especially the case right now during the COVID crisis, where uh, you have this sort of interesting set of economic trends, right, where a lot of folks are struggling on their mortgages because their income has gone down because they've either been laid off or their hours have been cut. But at the same time, if you look nationally, housing prices are up. And so that's kind of a, a scary and toxic combination if you think about it, because if you're a bank, uh, if you foreclose on somebody because they are having struggling to make their payments, you're actually getting access to an asset that's gaining in value. That's right. You're making money. Yeah. Whereas during the financial crisis in 08, obviously there was a housing crisis and, and home prices were going down. So actually banks had less of a financial incentive to foreclose and, and sort of more of an incentive potentially to, to modify mortgages and try and keep people in their homes. Now, they obviously didn't do a very good job of that. But you know, think about how bad that was when housing prices were going down. And now think about what it would look like if housing prices were actually going up pretty sharply. right? And so that's one thing that I'm worried about going forward is just that the elements are in place for a serious foreclosure problem going forward. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I wanted to talk about uh, one of the things that really stood out in this report is uh, the emphasis throughout on addressing structural racism in the economy. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you're the Roosevelt Institute. It comes out of, I think, you're, you're the Roosevelt Library. Uh, Roosevelt passed the New Deal, and uh, you point out that it was the the New Deal was was racist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it excluded. Uh, African-Americans and other people of color. Uh, obviously, in FDR's defense, he could only pass that. He, he needed uh, Southern Dixiecrats to pass that. How, If you could talk a bit about uh, how many of the problems we face today basically a result of the structural racism that was baked into the American economy 80 years ago, and how important it is to address that if we're actually going to have inclusive growth. Yeah, I mean, I think it's critically important, and it it has to be at the center of of all of this economic policy making. One thing that I've always found remarkable is that the gap between the white home ownership rate and black home ownership rate today is actually bigger than it was in 1960 when the federal government was actively discriminating in housing. Right. So we have stopped that kind of active discrimination by the federal government. But it's like if you give you know one person a, a huge head start in the race and you say, you know what, we're going to stop giving you such a big head start, but now you guys have to start running <laughs> and, <you're>, <laughs> and you don't try to help the other person catch up, yeah. uh, you know, it's not going to be a fair race. And so you know, I, that's why I think you know, trying to take steps with the view of, of addressing 
the racial wealth gap in America and, you know, the sort of power structures in America that that date back to um, sort of their, their racist origins, whether they're in the New Deal or, or before, I think is is really important. You know, just to go back to student loan debt, you know, one thing that's fascinating about student loan debt is how uh, is the racial implications of it. You know, black students, they're more likely to have to borrow to go to school. They're more likely to have to take out a bigger amount of debt to go to school. They're more likely to graduate with debt or with more debt when, when they uh, leave school. And I think in the most remarkable uh, data point of all, you know, 20 years after graduating, the median white student loan borrower has paid off 95% of their loan. The median black borrower still owes 95% of their loan. And that's, wow, you know, that's an amazing part. statistic. Yeah. And it's in large part because, you know, labor market discrimination means that the value of that degree is, is less valuable for right. a black graduate. It's because in, in large part, white students can rely on some white family wealth to help yes. pay off their loans, which may not be available to black students. And so, you know, if you do uh, student loan debt cancellation, and there's obviously various permutations of it, you can actually uh, take a, a significant step towards trying to close the racial wealth gap in America and in housing, right? Like I said, there was systemic discrimination against black families in housing with redlining you know, in, the, in the 1960s, where essentially the federal government was providing subsidies for white families to buy homes and weren't, wasn't providing that to black families. And that wealth, that compounds over generations where that first family that was able to buy that house is able to pay off their mortgage by the time they retire, they pass that along to their kids. All of a sudden their kids have you know, a valuable asset that they can rely upon that wasn't available to black families, a lot of them. And so it's not enough to say, you know, we're going to cut it out with the discrimination right now. I think it's important to say, you know, we need to do more to help specifically, you know, black families, especially maybe black families who, from redlined areas to, to help purchase homes so they can start building wealth too. So I think, again, thankfully, the Biden campaign, you know, did center this type of racial equity in a lot of the proposals they've talked about, you know, from housing to childcare to small business, right? In their childcare plan, I found it very gratifying that they not only said we're going to provide universal childcare for people, but it's important to raise wages for childcare workers. You know, the overwhelming majority of childcare workers are women and women of color. Again, I think it's a hopeful sign that we're more focused on these types of issues now. And I think that as we make these types of structural changes to the economy, and try and rebalance some of the power dynamics that we that exist in, in society and in the economy, it's important to recognize that we do that in a way that empowers, you know, black, Hispanic families and communities that have too often been cut out of those power structures before. We always ask our guests one question, which is, why do you do this work? <laughs> I'll tell you a quick story. I, uh, I'm a lawyer. I graduated from law school back in 2007. I was a huge baseball fan. I grew up in Boston and uh, and I had the opportunity in 2007, right after law school, to go work for the Red Sox, um, which was a dream come true for me. You know, I worked in an office, you know, I helped them do data analysis, uh, you know, as a baseball stats nerd, it was, a, it was really fun. At the end of the day, we'd go up to the general manager's box and watch the, watch the game if the Red Sox were playing at home. And we actually, the Red Sox won the World Series that year in 2007. Because um, of your work, no doubt. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> I, uh, anyway, you know, that was a, uh, a dream come true, like I said. But at the end of the season, even though it had gone great and it had been a fun time, you know, the feeling I had was, is this what I want to dedicate my life to? And I think I realized that, 
you know, at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was try to make, you know, the economy, the society work better for more people. And, and you know, I eventually ended up with Senator Warren in 2013 and, and, and spent, you know, seven years working for her uh, because I think she very much had the same view of, uh, you know, what she wanted to do with her life, what her view of what government should be trying to do to help people. And, uh, and it's been very gratifying. So, you know, it's a, it's a long slog. I mean, for a long time working in the Senate, Senator Warren and the Democrats were in the minority. A, a lot of what, the work we did was just trying to stop bad things from happening <laughs> uh, and, and try and build public support slowly and surely for, for new ideas that we could use, uh, you know, when we did have some power and control. It can be draining and, um, uh, and feel like you're doing one step forward and two steps back. But at the end of the day, it, it's, it's invigorating to wake up every morning and feeling like you're trying to do something to, to make the world a little bit better. So um, I've really enjoyed it. That's fantastic. Well, thanks for your work and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Of course. Thank you guys. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. So, uh, Nick, uh, True New Deal, what do you think? A, a pipe dream or something we can accomplish? Well, I think it would be hard to get uh, all of these things done in one uh, four-year administration, but it does seem to me that this is a huge step in the right direction because at least I think we're beginning to talk about the right things. But brought, I thought, in our conversation was centered on, I think, the most important thing, which is pre-distribution, not ameliorating the problem, actually fixing the fundamental problems. Because you obviously, you know, as we've discussed on the pod a million times now, if wages uh, for working in middle-class people had actually tracked productivity gains and were at the median instead of 50, 100,000, a lot of our problems would fall away. And so the focus on pre-distribution, I think, is right. essential making sure that people get paid enough and that the economy is structured in a way that leads to success rather than hinders success. I think right. that's super important. Yeah. You know, and we've talked about this before, Nick, you know, if you're a big fan of market capitalism and you're focused on fixing all of the problems it creates, it doesn't make much of a case for market capitalism. The better approach is to actually fix market capitalism so it doesn't create so many problems. That's and right. I think what's interesting about this is that altogether these these nine policies, it looks really big and comprehensive and ambitious. But when you break it down and you look at the individual proposals, a lot of it isn't new. And uh, a lot of it is done elsewhere in the world. And a lot of it is really very doable. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was a fascinating conversation cool guy doing great work. And just so you know, we'll provide a link to this report in the show notes. So please click through, read it. And we'd, we'd love to hear your feedback on uh, online policy proposals. And in the next episode of Pitchfork Economics, we're going to talk to Idris Kowloon, who is the U.S. policy correspondent at the Economist about the economic challenges that the Biden administration faces. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. 
As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.